Good morning, welcome. This is our fourth message series in our Advent series, The Joy of Every Loving Heart. And today on Christmas Eve, I want to give you my gift. Um, I understand the rules of Christmas. You're allowed a gift on Christmas Eve, so I am well within my rights and privileges and the rules and regulations of Christmas. This morning, I'd like to give voice, as I prayed to those of you here today that just they don't feel like they're very good Christians. Maybe, maybe you're one. Maybe, maybe it's not all the time. Maybe it's not today. Maybe, maybe it was a season. Um, maybe it visits you regularly at different times of the year that are filled with sorrow or difficulty. And we just think, God, why do you love a mess like me? I'm not a good Christian. Maybe you'd admit to this or something similar. This is from a blogger reviewing a great book called Messy Spirituality. He reads, he writes, excuse me, sometimes I'm not a very good Christian. I don't pray enough. I don't read my Bible enough. I don't share my faith enough. I don't love God and neighbor enough. I'm not committed enough, and I'm just not spiritual enough. I'm convinced that I just don't do Christianity right. I've spent most of my life worried about what I don't do instead of what I have done, focused on my imperfections instead of God's fondness for the imperfect. But here's the deal. This is kind of my prayer for anybody in this room, anybody listening online. Here's the reality of the situation. I'm going to let you in on a a dirty little secret that those of us who do have it all together, you're supposed to laugh. That's a joke. Don't go home thinking, you know, I've had teens going, Pastor Jerry said, no, Jerry was kidding. Dirty little secret that those of us who do have it all together um, don't like to admit. We all don't have it all together. Right? If you're on the outside, you're not a member of the church, somebody dragged you here, and you're thinking, wow, there's a whole lot of holy people here. <laughs> Put that on the back burner for just a little bit. Um, These are great people. (laughs) This is a great congregation. Don't get me wrong, but we're human, right? And sometimes we just need to admit it, and it's hard to admit it personally in in an intimate setting, but in here, nobody has to say anything, and you can just kind of coattail on what I'm talking about here. But here's the deal. We got great exterior. We got great presentation, but I tell you what, if you could step into the inner lives of many Christians, not all, not you, but many Christians, you discover a whole lot of hidden parts, hidden, hidden stories, I and mean, they're kept hidden for a reason, right? You're the only one who knows the reason, but God does too. Kind of think Gilligan's Island and the, and the berries that Gilligan found, and they all became mind readers, right? Just kind of sit there for a, a, a moment. What a horrible situation that would be, and yet God can handle it, Right? In many of these inner lives, you'd find a very, very, very messy interior filled with mistakes, brokenness, regrets, and pain. You might say that Christian has a very healthy, long history of being messy, right? Just being messy, messy prophets, messy kings, messy disciples, messy apostles, right? From God's people getting into one mess after another in the Old Testament to the vast majority of the New Testament being written to what? Messy churches, right? The, the Bible is just this incredible, glorious story of 
a holy God stepping into a, just a messy people, right? His creation. I love my creation, and I will fix it. I will never abandon it. Sounds like you and I are in good company. Peace is messy. I know it sounds like a paradox or an oxymoron. We're going to talk a little bit about that. Military intelligence, silent scream, old news. I love the list here. Bittersweet, lead balloon, civil war. I, that hadn't hit me yet. It was, that was nice. Plastic silverware, jumbo shrimp. And, and I don't know if you think about it, but oxymoron is oxymoronic, right? Oxy means sharp and moronic is dull. Sharp and dull. And that's what we're looking at this morning, two incredibly opposites, radically opposed ideas, and yet in Christ, neither one of them is lost, but an incredible truth emerges out of these two sub-ideas. Writers and poets have used oxymorons and paradoxes as a literary device to explain in their works life's incredible inconsistencies. Right? Nothing seems to make sense. We do good and bad happens. We do bad and we gain. It's it just like we look back and, well, who's in charge here? And if you can accept and live with the incongruities and the inconsistencies of life, you have a special skill. I don't know if you're aware of this. Very few people have this skill. Right? Researchers and writers into human nature, they call this integrative thinking. And, and, and if you can hold those opposites... And not freak out just a little bit. And you can find a meaning between these two opposites. You have this integrative skill. Here's what a, kind of a definition, the capacity or the ability to hold two diametrically opposing ideas or viewpoints in our heads. And then, here's the important part, and then without panicking or simply settling for one alternative at the expense of the other to form a new idea that contains elements of the opposing ideas, the other two ideas, or any number of ideas that were before but it's superior to the previous ideas. F. Scott Fitzgerald called this ability the test of a first-rate intelligence. I, mean, I didn't want to break that out because right, someone's going to feel like, well, I don't have that skill, so I'm a dummy. No, it's not, not what we're saying here. Right? The reason I quote F. Scott Fitzgerald is because he added a very, very helpful example. He says this, one should, for example, be able to see that things are hopeless and yet be determined to make them otherwise. For the ancient Israelites and for us today, the only difference being that we and the Israelites are convinced, we are determined that God would be the one that would be able to make the hopeless things not. He would be the one that would fix the hopelessness in our lives. Psalm 89 is another psalm of lament. We've been looking at psalms of lament throughout this preaching series. Just a little review here of of what Psalm 89 is going to preview, of of what 89 is going to be about. The first pretty fat chunk of it is the promised perpetuity or the foreverness, the enduringness of David's throne. And then in the middle section, it appears, as the people looked around, as the Israelites looked around, that God had voided, negated the promise, had forgotten about the promise, wasn't going to honor the promise. And at the end, they, they have a plea, please restore David's promised throne. They sing of God's steadfast love in the past and His promise that David's throne would last forever, but it now appeared that the promises weren't going to come true. Written either just before or during the exile, right? 
Babylon coming in and destroying everything. And then over the course of about a decade, you know, carting people off back to Babylon. Everything was going wrong. It looked like the land that was promised, right? The promised land. It appears that that promise is now no longer. Right? The promised presence of God, the Shekinah in the temple, gone. God left the temple. The temple's destroyed. And the promised endurance, the foreverness of David's throne, didn't look like that was going to happen. There was no throne. There was no temple. There was no anything. All the promises of God seemed to have been, well, I tried with you all, but you just wouldn't cooperate, so I'm going to move on to another people maybe. And this is what we think, right? Don't we? When things are going wrong, we think, "Ah, God's just going to skip over me because I'm kind of a mess, and I can't seem to get it together. And so what could God possibly do with me? How could He use me? How could I be a conduit of His Spirit? That's And so they ask, as many Christians ask, when God seems to have voided his promises, how long will God be hidden? Excuse me, how long will God be angry? Where is God's steadfast love? Remember us. This is the cry of the ancient Israelites, and this is the cry of many people today. Where are you, God? Remember us. Maybe you've had a friend asking the same questions. Maybe you've been asking the same questions. Right? You know you haven't been the best of Christians, but how bad must I have been for things to go so badly? And these, these thoughts, they just they overwhelm us as we lay in bed at night and we think, God can't do anything with me. Like He really needs to look elsewhere, or else He needs to do a number on me. Right? He needs to change me in some way from the inside out because I'm just not up to what He's calling me to do. And the psalm is honest about sin. It's honest about faithfulness, unfaithfulness. There's clearly a need in the psalm for repentance. Right? We can't forget anything, of, any of those kind of things. They're important. But the story is also it's just a mess. It's a messy story. Right? Full of brokenness and despair. Let's dig into this psalm. And I just kind of want to remind you, I always put the words up on the screen behind me. You see it at home beside me. Um, but I know I bounce around a lot, a lot of the text before or right after. So if you want to have Bibles open, that, that's okay. Nobody will make fun of you, okay? Just want to make sure you knew that. The psalm starts with, God, with remembering God's steadfast love in the past. It says, As I will sing of the Lord's great love forever. For my mouth, from my mouth, I will make your faithfulness known through all generations. I will declare that your love stands firm forever, your steadfast love that you have established your faithfulness in heaven itself. You said, right, this is the psalmist speaking for God, you said that I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your line forever and make your throne firm through all generations. Maybe if you would allow other people to take a peek inside you, Right Inside your mind, not like a surgeon, but inside your mind, inside your thoughts, inside your, your inner world. And somebody asked, explain it. I think most of us would default to, um, it's complicated. It's complicated. I love God, but right? don't, don't look at my, left, my life and, and draw your own conclusions. Please don't, because I do, I do love God. 
It's complicated. I know I did that. I know I did this. I know I still think that. It's complicated. Same with King David. He's remembered as one of the Israelites' greatest kings, even though one of his most memorable acts was abusing his power by taking Bathsheba and killing her husband, Uriah. David repents of his sin, and God is faithful to him. Right? In fact, he calls him a man after my own heart. It's like, what is God thinking? David's a mess. Right? He's a hot mess. Right? He's worse than me. Well, <laughs> if you're worse than David, you need to see some help. Get some help. Let's just move on past that. And then for about a dozen verses, the psalmist sings of God's great glory and his power. And then at verse 19, we pick it up again. The psalmist returns to this theme about David's throne and, and God, have you kept your promises? Will you keep your promises? Once you spoke in a vision to your faithful people, you said, I have bestowed strength on a warrior. I have raised up a young man from among the people. I have found David, my servant. With my sacred oil, I have anointed him. My hand will sustain him. Surely my arm will strengthen him. The enemy will not get the better of him. The wicked will not oppress him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down his adversaries. And again, as this psalm has been being read in an Israelite service, the people have got to be wondering, right? David's throne is gone. This is, this is a promise and yet, the promise that it refers to is, is gone. In fact, later on in the psalm, it says that David's crown has been profaned and, and cast into the dust. Psalm continues, though. My faithful love will be with him, and through his name, a horn of salvation. Right? That's the, the terminology here. His horn will be exalted, the horn of salvation. I will set my hand over the sea, my right hand over the rivers. He will call out to me, you are my father, my God, the rock, my salvation. And I will appoint him to be my firstborn, the most exalted of the kings of the earth. I will maintain my love for him forever, and my covenant with him will never fail. I will establish his line forever. His throne is long as the heavens endure. But again, it didn't look like that. It did not look like David's throne would last. In fact, it looked like it was already gone. It was already over. David's mess might have been too much. Maybe in the Israelites' minds, they knew the history of David. They knew very well the history of David. And they were concluded, God can't work with messes. David's story, like many of our stories, it's a paradox, right? It's complicated. Because God first loved him... David is a mess that loves God. That's just weird all over the place. And then on top of that, God returns that love in the midst of David's mess. Right? How are we to understand all of that? Right? That's just grace. Peace is messy. Peace is messy for everybody involved. For the one receiving peace. It's hard for many Christians. Right? Grace is just... We feel somehow wrong by exercising grace. You know, people do something bad. They need to be punished. And yet grace says, maybe not. Maybe we can work this out in a different fashion. 
I'm reminded of the lyrics from Reckless Love. When I was your foe, still your love fought for me. You have been so, so good to me. When I felt no worth, you paid it all for me. You have been so, so kind to me. There's no shadow you won't light up, mountain you won't climb up, coming after me. There's no wall you won't kick down, lie you won't tear down, coming after me. See, that's the mess in which God is dealing with as he comes and wants to enter our lives. We're like, oh, man, I'm against you. I'm your foe. I got walls. I got shadows in my life. I've got mountains. And yet you just plow right through them. I'm a mess. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. There's your answer. It chases me down, fights till I'm found, leaves the 99. I couldn't earn it. I don't deserve it. Still, you give yourself away. The overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. Peace is messy. It's difficult for us to just receive the peace that Christ offers because we look at our lives and I know this doesn't work. This doesn't work. I've got to get way, way, way better before you give me that peace because I'm going to make a mess of it. So it's messy for the one receiving peace, but it's also messy for the one providing peace. Someone has to pay for the cost, right? Love always costs, and it's usually messy. In Matthew's genealogy of Jesus, he pointedly reminds us. He didn't have to put it in there, but he, I think he did it very, 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 very much on purpose. The Holy Spirit said, do this. He makes no uncertain terms. Jesus is descended from David's sin against Bathsheba and Uriah. Jesus is descended from some pretty horrible sin. Right? The provider of peace has to enter our mess to accomplish his mission, and that's exactly what he does. Mary, she was a real person, young, probably scared to death. Her choice to obey had very real, real-world consequences. It's called community shame, and you know she felt it. You know her entire family felt it. That was the cost to provide peace. And then baby Jesus, no crying he may, really. <laughs> Moms, anybody want to testify to that? The three wise men honored him with gifts for an adult king. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. What's baby Jesus going to do with these things? Thank you, Valerie for sending me this information. It took three wiser women who followed the wise men to provide the desperately needed diapers, formula, and casseroles for the week. <laughs> Babies are messy. Babies are, no, and listen, that's not in the Bible. Don't go home. Pastor Jerry told us there were three wiser women. But the other paradox continues to the very end of the psalm. Yes, God is almighty. Yes, yes, God loves us with this steadfast love, but he seems to be hiding his face from us. Right? He seems to be ignoring his promises. This is in 46 and 47. How long, Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how fleeting my life is. Like, I've got a lot more time. Please move. I'm going to be dead soon anyway. What futility you have created all humanity, right? Why did you even do all this if you're now going to leave us? 
Why did you even start the project? What futility. Who can live and not see death, or who can escape the power of the grave? Lord, where is your former great love, which in your faithfulness you swore to David? Remember, Lord, how your servant has been mocked. Remember how I bear in my heart the taunts of all the nations, the taunts with which your enemies, Lord, have mocked, with which they have mocked every step of your anointed one. Shame, community shame for being obedient. <coughs> and the psalm ends with a paradox, again, a paradox, <coughs> that we have to embrace. And I want to challenge you to embrace this last paradox in order to move forward in life, right, and with God and with neighbor and, and have the joy and the peace that he desperately wants for us. In the midst of unanswered questions, unanswered prayers, when things seem hopeless, Here's the other side of that paradox. God has been, is, and will be the, ones, the one that makes things hopeless things otherwise. God will be the one. He has been, he is currently, and he will be the one. In absolute trust, the psalmist ends with these words, Praise be to the Lord forever. Amen and amen. I want to make perfectly clear here, the answer hadn't come yet. God had not answered their pleas. In their lifetimes, lifetimes of their children, their grandchildren, their great-great-grandchildren, four or five hundred years, no answer. And yet they end the psalm unanswered with praise to God. Nothing looks like how we expect it to look in this life. Right? We, we, we've got this idea that if I'm good, good things. If I'm a tool, bad things. Right? We just, we just kind of got this idea that life should maybe work that way, but in his infinite love, he says, no, nah, I, I got a better way. I got a much better way. The story of the world's redemption comes through real people with really messy stories. And that should just give us incredible encouragement. Right? Maybe I'm not so far gone because, you know, King David, <laughs> what, a, what a mess. Redemption comes in vulnerable ways to vulnerable people. Christ wants to bring us peace. He wants to bring us shalom. Right? Shalom is just not the absence of violence. It's this idea that God wants you to have everything in this world that he had planned for you, but the world and you made it really difficult for him to give you all, but he never stops trying. Your Heavenly Father never stops trying to give you the things that maybe you reject, maybe the world doesn't let you have. Maybe the world says you're not good enough to have what my Heavenly Father wants to give you. We all need to keep in mind peace is messy. I think our challenge is to think integratively, accepting two polar opposite truths. One, that we're a mess. Some of us are doing really well, some of us aren't. But on the outside, we all, we all look pretty decent. Y'all look really good today. I'll just tell you that. 
we're messes, and the other truth is God is holy. And for most people, those two ideas should not ever be together. Messy people and a holy God. But then we need to arrive at that third truth, right? That synthesis, that bringing together of both ideas without re- entirely rejecting them, but coming up with just a beautiful third story. On Christmas morning, we celebrate the fact that God didn't ignore his promises. Jesus Christ was born into the line of David. So as you read through Psalm 89, and you really get to that part where it sounds like God is negating his promise, just think forward. He never negated the promise. Jesus Christ is from the line of David. So that psalm is alternately about David, but as we look down through the ages, it's we, we, we can, we do have room to make it about Jesus Christ. He is that mighty warrior that God raised up. God is here, Emmanuel, God with us. And even in the midst of our vulnerabilities, in the midst of our messes, In the midst of the sin done to us and the sins that we have committed against other people, God wants to draw near. The Prince of Peace wants to come even now, once again, because this is who he is. It's not what he does, it's who he is. He brings renewed hope into our lives. And if you're listening this morning, and you arrived without hope, you need to understand that's not a good position to be in, and you don't have to continue to live out that position. Go ahead and admit you're a mess. Go ahead and admit God is holy. But please arrive at the end of the story. Don't stop before the end of the story. God fulfills his promise. He does give you a Savior. He does save you. Maybe not in the way you wanted, maybe not in the way you thought, but in the way that was best. We all have an opportunity to be saved. This is what Christ wants. This was God's plan that we would all be saved. He didn't want any of us to perish. Would you bow your heads, Father? Father, give your spirit to the person, the people here listening. The world has, has wrecked their trust in you. The world has broken them. Father, meet them where they are this morning. In the midst of their mess, and if you're praying this, pray hard, don't stop. Father, thank you for answering these prayers. Thank you for being willing to step into our mess. This is nothing new for you. You've been doing this for so long. Father, our prayer is that you won't ever stop. Your son is on the throne. You have fulfilled your promise. Salvation does come in the morning. Thank you, Father. Amen.